Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. There's always been a lottery. Do we agree with old man Warner that the lottery should be continued simply because there's always been one? As Oklahomans try to strike it rich, they also invest in Oklahoma's future. Or do we object with Tessie that the whole thing just isn't fair, isn't right? And so people who buy tickets thinking, hey, I'm helping education, do you think they're really doing as much as they think they are? They, they believe they are, but they're absolutely not benefiting education. Whatever else Shirley Jackson has done in her story, she has certainly given us a memorable image. We're not talking about that lottery, are we, Nick? Well, as every English teacher in America knows, Hannah, the morning of June 27th was clear and sunny with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. All right, I'm going to put the kibosh on Shirley Jackson from the outset, although I will say that short story is all about hyper-local government. But I do want to ask you, with all seriousness, what does buying a ticket and maybe winning millions of dollars have to do with U.S. governmental systems? Why are we doing a civics episode on the lottery? Uh, because uh, I'm an awesome guy. No, that isn't the right answer. Wait, is that Kevin? It is. It is. I'll let him introduce himself here. My name's Kevin Flynn. I'm a former journalist and author, and I wrote the book American Sweepstakes. How one small state bucked the church, the feds, and the mob to usher in the lottery age. So we've got to do a whole mess of full disclosure here. Kevin Flynn is indeed a writer, podcast host, TV and radio journalist. And a dear friend. And. And he's married to our executive producer, Rebecca Lavoie. He sure is. But we were in a Civics 101 production meeting talking about the lottery and its intersection with the government. And we learned that Kevin had written a book on it. So we had to have him on the show. All right, now we got that out of the way. Uh, Did he give a reason on why civics listeners should be interested in the lottery? It's a great question. Um, The lottery is just a big part of state government these days. How big? Big, big. Real big. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we are talking about the U.S. lottery. How it started, ended, started again, how much money it makes and where that money goes. Now, Kevin said lottery is a big part of state government. But does every state in the U.S. have one? Almost, almost. Mississippi was the most recent state to adopt a lottery. They started selling tickets in 2020. What? Mississippi lottery offered up scratch-off tickets for the very first time. And Mississippians can take a shot at winning without having to leave the state. Five states do not have a lottery. Alaska, Hawaii, Utah, Alabama, and Nevada. So when did this all start like when was the first lottery oh we have always had lotteries in civilization right lotteries go back to the bible right in the old testament it was you know casting lots was the way that a lot of times the the will of god was divined king saul was uh selected because of a drawing of lots do you remember when the apostles were down a man they were down to 11 guys for some reason. Oh. 
down a man? As in after Judas Iscariot died? Yeah. There were two candidates to become the new 12th apostle, and they cast lots. That means they threw sticks of different lengths on the ground to see who it would be, and it ended up being Matthias. And okay, that's more Bible than Civics 101 has ever had, and maybe it's just so I could use clips from Jesus Christ Superstar. You want me to do it? But let's move on. The Great Wall of China was financed, some repairs that were financed by the Chinese for an early version of Kino. Uh, I think they called it the the White Pigeon Game. The roads to Rome, Hannah, were paid for by raffles. And to finally wend our way towards America, the Jamestown Settlement in Virginia, the first permanent English settlement in the Americas, was financed with a lottery. You're kidding me. So you could say America really is, you know, the the child of a lottery. Part of the Continental Army was financed through a lottery. George Washington wanted to raise $10 million to pay for uh, the Revolutionary War and the Continental Army through a lottery. So, you know, it was always, it, it, it's something that's been around, um, you know, since, since people had money. I want to add, by the way, that lottery in 1776 to help pay for the Revolutionary War failed. Utterly. They didn't come even close to raising enough money. Congress printed 100,000 tickets, but they only sold around 30,000. So to pay for the war, they just printed a bunch of money instead and borrowed a lot from France. But what's important is that it set a precedent for other lotteries in our new country to help pay for infrastructure like roads and bridges. All right. Now, this is where it starts to become a civics conversation, right? Armies, roads and general infrastructure costs usually fall into the purview of government expenses. So why is a lottery involved at all? A lottery is a way to get money for something when you don't have the power or the political interest to tax people. If you want to build a covered bridge and you don't have the money in your state budget to do it, having a lottery to build that bridge where the winner gets some of the money from the lottery tickets and the rest goes to building the bridge, that might get you reelected. Whereas raising taxes might not. So from our nation's founding up to the 1840s, over the whole United States, hundreds and hundreds of lotteries were springing up to pay for stuff. And when you have a lot of lotteries, you start to also get a lot of rigging of lotteries to pick winners. So it's just, you know, when you deal with a lot of cash like that, you know, Sharpies are going to come in and do what they do. That's a lot of sugar, Nick. There's a lot of sugar there. It's funny because, you know, let's go to like to the mid-1800s. Lotteries ended up getting kind of a stink on them in, uh, in public. Not illegal, but in a nation where cockfighting and duels uh, and uh, poker games are considered gentlemanly, it was lotteries that, you know, started to get a bad name. In part because no, no poor person ever died in a duel. Right. That was that was the lotteries ended up democratizing gambling. So rich folks are gambling left and right. But the one form of gambling that working class Americans can participate in gets a bit of stigma. Yeah. And as often the case in these instances, somebody just went a little too far. The biggest lottery in America in the 19th century was called the Louisiana Lottery Company, and it was 
huge. It was nicknamed the Golden Octopus. Its hands were everywhere. People all over the country played it. Over half of the mail in New Orleans was lottery tickets. And what the company did is they paid 40 grand each year to a charity hospital, and they got to keep the rest of their profits tax-free. There was a staggering amount of corruption. Bribes got paid to reps in state and federal legislatures all over the country. So in response, the federal government passed a bill banning the sale of lottery tickets in the mail. So the Louisiana Lottery Company moved to Honduras. And finally, in 1895, all lotteries in the United States were banned. And that's it. This is making me think of prohibition, okay? Right? You've got something that's legal, highly profitable, very popular, very prevalent, and then it's made illegal. And I would say, not just with booze, but with a lot of things in history, what history has shown us is that when you then make it illegal, it rarely, if ever, actually goes away. Naturally. And I know that the lottery didn't go away because I grew up in Massachusetts and I know that I can walk outside and I can buy a ticket. So how did we get from the banning of the golden octopus to lotteries being run in most states? We get there via something called the numbers. Okay. Uh, You know, once upon a time, uh, that's not a good way to start, right? I counter that once upon a time is always a good way to start. And this is Matthew Vaz. He's a professor at City College of New York, and he wrote a fascinating book called Running the Numbers, Race, Police, and the History of Urban Gambling. So, once upon a time, there was a popular illegal game called Policy. And it involved betting on several two-digit numbers between 1 and 72. The odds were a little complicated, uh, but it, it, you know, it, it offered a way to make a small bet on a number guess and come out with a decent amount of money if you win. You could bet a dollar and maybe in some situations you could win $200, but the winning numbers were generated by the spinning of a wheel, so to speak, you know, you know maybe sort of drawn out, almost like a, you know, pulling a ping pong ball out of a out of a barrel kind of a thing. But the problem with policy was that, like all lotteries beforehand, they could be rigged. The person picking out the ping pong ball could cheat and grab one with their friend's number on it. And they did. But a new system was born in Harlem in the 1920s. Uh, most people believe that it was a man named Casper Holstein, who was an immigrant to New York from the West Indies, uh, developed a new method for arriving at winning numbers. He came up with a game that is typically called the numbers uh, that involves placing a bet or, you know, on a guess of what the last three digits before the decimal point will be in a massive number generated by some far off uncontrollable institution. And so what they initially used was was an institution called the New York Clearinghouse, right? It's a, it's a financial institution that sort of, you know, clears money from different banks and millions of dollars would pass through it every day. And at the end of the day, they'd publish how much money went through that clearinghouse, and the last three digits of that number were the winning numbers. So it could say, you know, today, $12,483,221.69 passed through here. And the last three digits before the decimal point were 221. Right. And that's a number that no man on the street can manipulate or control. It's it, it is, in essence, almost a random number. Right. You'd make your bet with a numbers runner. And this is important. You would pick 
what your numbers were. People chose lucky birthdays, favorite numbers, holidays, whatever. The odds are one in a thousand that you'll win. And the payout was usually 600 bucks for a dollar bet. Uh, and it becomes a very, very popular form of gambling. First, in the black communities of New York, it displaces that older policy game. People basically abandon playing that because this game is simpler, the payouts are better, and it, it in effect cannot be rigged, right? It cannot be manipulated. And it becomes popular in most of the major cities along the East Coast, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Baltimore. And eventually it, it spreads well beyond uh you know, the black communities of those cities and becomes popular among working class whites. Organized crime figures start to muscle in on the game, particularly after prohibition is over. And there's a kind of, you know, violent contestation over who's going to tro- control the game. Is it going to be the mafia or is it going to be black gamblers that had set up this game initially? Oh, this I remember from our episode on Map the Ohio, right? That somebody bombed Don King's home in Cleveland, Ohio, over a fight to control the numbers racket. But I also remember... And we talked about this when we were making that episode, that the numbers were a community institution. Right, right. The people who ran the numbers, they lived there in those neighborhoods, in that community. And the payout, it wasn't a million dollars. And it wasn't two dollars. It was six hundred dollars. And the reason to bring that up is Matthew asked me if I'd ever won two bucks on a scratch ticket, which I have. If you win that four dollars or that two dollar prize, you know, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Probably buy more scratch tickets. You're going to buy two more. Exactly. Right. It's like, oh, nice. I won. Give me two more of those. Right. But if you're playing the old fashioned numbers game and you win six hundred dollars, what are you going to do with that? Right. Something, you know, something better. You something you're going to catch up on your bills or whatever it is, you know, it's going to move you along a little bit. I imagine that state legislatures, which had this history of using gambling to fund projects, were taking a good hard look at the numbers games and asking, how can we get some of that? How can we get some of that? As Kevin would say, how can we get some of that sugar? Which they certainly did. But it wasn't going to be an easy road to that pot of municipal gold. We'll get to the legalization of lottery and where the money goes right after the break. But first, if you want a lotto fun extra civics tidbits in your life, subscribe to our newsletter, Extra Credit. It's every two weeks, and since it's free, it's not even a gamble. Just click the newsletter button at our website, civics101podcast.org. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people 
that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. We're back and you're listening to Civics 101. Now, just a quick reminder that our show depends on the generosity of our listeners to keep running. And instead of us having a lottery, we just ask that you donate whatever you feel is fair at civics101podcast.org. The odds are not the same that you will win a mega million jackpot, but they're almost the same. And speaking of a mega million jackpot, Nick, how did we get from a federally banned activity to a pastime in which millions of Americans participate? The shift to a legal lotto starts in 1963 in a state famously opposed to taxes... None other than the home state of Civics 101, New Hampshire. Here's Kevin Flynn again. Well, in New Hampshire, there was a uh, there was a state representative named Larry Pickett who thought that a great way to raise money for um, state causes was would be to hold the sweepstakes, and it was finally s- signed into law by Governor John King, and this immediately set off a whole bunch of reaction in the state and across the country. Wait, 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 wait. The lottery was illegal federally. Yes, it was. So is this kind of akin to states across the country decriminalizing marijuana, even though at the federal level, it's still a Schedule One drug and totally illegal? Hannah, that analogy to marijuana legalization is more apt than you can possibly imagine. Because, and I'm, I'm going to try to make this quick, you and I can't really understand just how scandalous it was for a state to legalize the lottery in the U.S. The FBI was involved. It was considered a national moral outrage. And to jump to the present, the path towards marijuana legalization from the blatant racial disparity of who got arrested for it to the national outcry against it and states discovering how much money can be made from it, taxing it, to it becoming legal in many states to purchase, but in some of them you've got to pay for it in cash. Every bit of it is note for note out of the lottery legalization playbook. But back to New Hampshire in the 1960s. One way they got around it is that it wasn't a lottery per se, even though we're going to call it one. It was technically a sweepstakes. The race is incidental to the sweeps excitement that has raised two and a half million dollars for New Hampshire's educational system. So instead of drawing a number on a ping pong ball and winning some money, a sweepstakes ticket holder was paired to one of 232 racehorses. And if that horse was picked to run in a race and then that horse won that race, you won a bunch of cash. And people across the country freaked out. 
Well, the lottery ended up being a, a big scandal, and almost every newspaper in the state was against it. They had like some really great quotes. And this is where I hope the folks from Civics 101 get a montage together of people reading these headlines like old-timey newspaper people. Like now be a good time to start playing that music, Nick. I'm I'm just I'm just like setting you up to spike this ball, okay? Is either New Hampshire or Uncle Sam so hard up that this shabby dodge is the only way out? What's happening in New Hampshire at the hands of politicians shouldn't happen to a dog. Scandalous experiment. More bankruptcy. There was one quote that was in favor of the lottery in New Hampshire. It's by the newspaper publisher Bill Loeb, who said, quote, No one has to go to the track and bet. No one has to smoke tobacco. No one has to drink. But how do those who oppose the sweepstakes propose to raise the money? Either a sales tax or property tax or some other kind of levy that people will have to pay. And New Hampshire did it. They sold lottery tickets. And people from all over the country came to New Hampshire to buy them. That's how much the country wanted a lottery. But the thing was, it was against the law to take lottery tickets across state lines back to where they lived. So New Hampshire found a workaround. So what New Hampshire did in order to sort of get around the Gambling Paraphernalia Act was that the tickets would stay in New Hampshire. People would get a carbon copy, like a receipt. They called it an acknowledgement. So it would prove to somebody that, yes, they had uh, purchased a ticket and you couldn't put somebody else's name. You couldn't resell the ticket. But the actual ticket, the one that would be drawn, would stay in New Hampshire. And this actually ended up in the United States Supreme Court in a case called U.S. v. Fabrizio. Anthony L. Fabrizio, the appellee, knowingly carried in interstate commerce from Keene, New Hampshire to Elmira, New York, 75 acknowledgments of purchase on a sweepstakes race of the state of New Hampshire. And he lost that Supreme Court appeal. I found out later on that it was common knowledge that there was at least one U.S. Supreme Court justice who had purchased a sweepstakes ticket at the time that they heard the case. Seriously? Yeah. Do you know which one? I can't say, Hannah. I can't tell you which one. I can't tell you which one, but you'll know him when you see him. If you're picking up what I'm putting down. All right, so once New Hampshire has the ball rolling, what is the next state to follow suit? The New Hampshire sweepstakes was a bit of a strange one-off. The Empire State came next. Here's Matthew Vaz again. But in New York, which is the second lottery and becomes much more of a kind of national template, right? Because when New York does something, the rest of the country uh, pays close attention. Uh, that that debate in New York, which happens over the course of 1965 and 66, is, is much more centered around the problem of illegal gambling. New York legalizes the lottery in 1966, and then a bunch of other states do the same. They can't compete with these illegal numbers games that we talked about earlier. And one of the reasons is, is that unlike the numbers game, in the lottery, you couldn't pick your own numbers. That was it. You couldn't pick birthdays or holidays or your kid's age. We're such a superstitious bunch. Essentially, these state lotteries don't rest until they figure out how to get to that numbers clientele. Uh, and it takes them a number of years. It's New Jersey that first figures out the technology, right? Like, how do we set up something that will allow people, a network that allows people to guess the number rather than just receive the number? 
on that first New Jersey game was called Picket. Until then, this is Dick LaRosa saying thanks for watching and playing Picket and Pick 4 with us. Good night. And Matthew told me the lottery was a pretty sleepy thing for 13 years until they indeed did figure out a way to let people pick numbers, after which sales quadrupled in four years. And here we are. Across the United States, tens of millions of people are clinging to a little piece of paper and a lot of hope. That's because tonight someone could become hundreds of millions of dollars richer. Are there still local numbers games, albeit underground, in cities? There are not much, honestly. And and part of that is due to the astronomical payout of the big lotteries. How can $600 compare to $600 million? Okay, I've always wondered this, and I'm going to guess that the answer is fairly straightforward, but in terms of those massive payouts, how is that possible? Like, how much money does the lottery itself actually make? Because you have to staff this operation, right? Yeah. I have some stats from 2015. So first, as a comparison, corporate income taxes in 2015 generated $49 billion. State lotteries generated $67 billion. And did all of that money go back into the states? No, not all of it. And this answers your question. $42 billion went into prizes. That's how they have such big jackpots. $3 billion went to advertising and administration of the lottery leaving about $21 billion that went back into the states. Now, where does that money go? I've heard that the lottery supports, for example, education in a lot of states. Did you ever see The Simpsons where they, there's like a, it's like a massive lottery? But there's already one big winner, our state school system, which gets fully half the profits from the lottery. Just think what we can buy with that money. History books that know how the Korean War came out. Math books that don't have that base six crap in them. Uh, yeah, it can be argued both ways, right? I, and, you know, I would say to you that that it varies state to state. OK, different states have a different arrangement uh, for where that money goes. In New York, there is a fallacy that it goes to education. Well, only in the most only in the most sort of symbolic sense does it go to education, which is to say the state education budget in New York is determined by a formula. Right. As a hypothetical, Hannah, with wildly inaccurate numbers, let's say New York set its education budget at a million dollars. And the lottery has a great year and has $750,000 left over. That doesn't mean that the state is now going to give $1,750,000 towards education. The state is still just going to give a million dollars to education. But the lottery had a big, huge year. And that means that if we take you know, now we can take that $750,000 that came in from the lottery and remove it from education and just spend it elsewhere in the budget, right? The, the phrasing is it's a substitute, not a supplement. In 1964, New Hampshire made $5.7 million selling $3 sweepstakes tickets. Right before the sweepstakes, New Hampshire was the 45th state as far as money that the state put towards education. And then after the sweepstakes... New Hampshire was 45th among 50 states as to what it put towards local education. Furthermore, once something becomes a kind of structural element of the budget, then it cannot be reduced, right? The only way to reduce it is to cut the good itself, the schools or the hospitals or whatever it's supporting, which nobody wants, right? Or to continue to support schools and hospitals, but there's only one way to do that, and that is taxes, right? And you see how 
literally impossible it is to, you know, raising taxes is, is, is a, you know, blood sport in, in American politics. So you are, in effect, committing yourself. I know the odds of winning a big jackpot are slim, but just for curiosity's sake, how slim are we talking? How far am I from becoming a multi-billionaire? <laughs> there was a big Mega Millions jackpot in Florida in January of 2021. It was $750 million. The odds of winning it are 1 in 302 million. Statistically, you are 10 times more likely to become the president of the United States than that. But that sum, that number, that staggering sum, you can't ignore that kind of a payout. I'm, I'm drawn in by the magnetism of this vast, obscene sum of money that has attracted me to this game. And so I'll, I'll play my dollar, right? And, and, you know, lottery executives used to use the joke. It's like most most players think there's really, the, the odds are 50-50. Either I win or I don't, right? You know, and, you know, and in some ways that is a kind of true feeling. Like, oh, hey, let me try. You know, either I win or I don't, right? And, and you know, it, it, it speaks to a kind of uh, mentality for how we organize our society. Like, are we all just sort of slowly kind of taking our turn, winning a modest sum of money? Or are we willing to sort of, you know, assume that we're never going to win on the infinitesimal chance that if we do, we're going to be hyper rich? There is an expression that lotteries are, quote, a tax on the poor. And I don't want to go too much into that expression, but I want to make two points related to it. First, Yes, Americans in lower income brackets spend more money on lottery tickets. But second, these games are marketed towards people with less money. The ads for lotteries are not aimed at wealthy Americans. And their slogans are things like New York Lotto. All you need is a dollar and a dream. A survey from 2006 found that one in three Americans who make less than 25000 a year think the lottery represents the most practical way for them to accumulate significant savings. It, you know, it speaks to like our ideas about distribution of, of, of wealth and, and inequality, right? It's like, look, I'd rather have, I, I'll skip having a decent chance of winning a modest sum in favor of having an infinitesimally small chance of having a grossly, outrageously large sum of, you know, $670 million right it's and it tracks very closely with the with the time period of like where you know inequality becomes a disaster in in american life since the late 1970s that fantasy that you won't win enough money to just pay off your student loans or put a down payment on a car but you'll win enough to buy an island and a helicopter to get you to that island and all of that because you spent a dollar on a lottery ticket I mean, non-existent odds or not, that is a tempting dream. And back to the civics part, for state budgets, this influx of cash from people buying these lottery chances, these fantasies, it is a dream come true. And you know what? If I could just add one more tidbit that I find fascinating. I'd forgotten completely about this. The people who win those massive jackpots, they end up having to pay about 37% of their winnings back to state and federal government for income tax. If you want to say gambling is bad for individuals, can't necessarily argue that. But the people really addicted to lotteries are the states that run them, that rely on the revenue. 
They're the ones who are really addicted to the lottery. The lottery. There's always been a lottery. That's it. Did any of you out there get Kevin's sly hint as to which Supreme Court justice bought a ticket? Brag at us on Twitter at Civics101Pod. I'm going to put the answer in this week's newsletter, which you can subscribe to at Civics101Podcast.org. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Thank you. Thank you. Our staff includes Christina Phillips and Jackie Fulton. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer and NHPR's very own Golden Octopus. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Sir Cubworth, Tracky Birthday, Proletor, Moorengardner, Meter, Ari De Niro, Chris Zabriskie, and the Sony Venetum Wind Quartet. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Lottery! I once won a big basket in a raffle. What was in it? I don't Was it just a basket? <laughs> Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.